This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Asaf Resnick, CEO and co-founder of Big Panda, an AI ops platform that's raised $337 million in funding. Asaf, thanks for chatting with me today. My pleasure, Brett. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So I see you were a VC at Sequoia back in 2005. So let's start there. Let's talk about your time as a VC. Then let's talk about that transition to a founder. Uh, sure. Yeah, I started off, I was a VC, I think it was, gosh, 2005. I joined Sequoia Capital. And, you know, it was one of those serendipitous moments in life where you kind of find yourself at the right place at the right time. And it's, it was really, you know, a turning point in my career. I'd say, you know, my 20s, I'd worked in tech, I'd worked in finance, but I was never really, I would say, hungry mm -hmm. for success, hungry to do something amazing. I was, I was kind of coasting. And then I get to Sequoia. And, you know, I find myself surrounded by these entrepreneurs who are doing amazing things. And we were lucky enough, I was lucky enough to play a small part in that. And after five, six years, I, I got myself thinking, you know, I'm working with these entrepreneurs. I don't think that they're any, you know, significantly smarter or more insightful than I am. They're just, they're just a hell of a lot more courageous and driven and hungry than I am. And so that was really, you know, my time at Sequoia and my time in VC is what really woke up the, you know, the entrepreneurial hunger inside of me. Are you downplaying that a little bit though? Because I feel like to get to work at Sequoia, you know, it's a big firm, highly sought after. Like you must have had some level of hunger there, I think, to, to land there in the first place, right? You know, I was always a curious person and you know, I always did well in school, always did well at work, you know, had intelligence that I would coast by. Mm -hmm. But no, I think it was more luck than brains. I mean, I was doing all right in life and, yeah. and fine, but I'm a firm believer in, you know, these days, hunger is what it takes. I mean, there's a lot of intelligent people mm -hmm. that are not hungry and not not making it in life. There's a, there's a fair amount of hungry people. There's no, there's no people who really made it somewhere in life that weren't hungry or weren't courageous. And so, you know, for me, I'd say, I don't know if it was hungry. It was more of, um, just wasn't pushing for more. I was just kind of going with the flow versus I think an entrepreneur's mindset is I want to change the world. Mm -hmm. I want to do something by my rules. And as you were making that transition, then going from a VC to a founder, what was like the hardest Thing about that change for you, would you say? It was very hard. I'll be honest. It was very hard. The first few years of entrepreneurship for me were, were just very different. You know, I'd worked at startups before joining venture capital. And then I worked at venture capital and you no, know, that was challenging, but you are, you're dealing with a lot of different portfolio companies. You're dealing with everything on a strategic level and you're getting into a lot of very important strategic discussions. Mm-hmm. And now you've kind of, you've got your own company and 100% of your success, your financial success, you know, your emotional, your self-image, your emotional success, it's all wrapped up in there. You know, this is not a job. It's, 
when you're an entrepreneur, it's a part of your identity. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's so much more emotional, so much more stressful versus, you know, working with a lot of different portfolio companies. And it's not really yours. Uh, yeah. And then that's part of it. And then the other part is, you know, you're getting into the thick of things. So, yeah, you're dealing with a lot of strategic issues, but you're dealing with human beings and you're dealing with a lot of tactics. You're dealing with a thousand and one decisions you need to make every day from the very strategic, which market do I want to be on in what product roadmap do I want to develop to do I want to hire this person? This director is not getting along with that director. My landlord is wants to raise the rent. You know, you're getting into every single aspect of the business. So yeah, you're the strategic driver, but you're also the janitor and you're the tactician and you're HR and you're everything. And I'd never done any of that before. It was really hard. And a few questions that we like to ask, really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one is what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? You know, I don't really have a founder that I admire the most because you know, there's the obvious answers of, you know, people who've had books written about them, right? But unless you're in there with them, it's really hard to tell. It's really hard to tell. I mean, the entrepreneur, I'd say, Mar the most, not really an entrepreneur, but Winston Churchill, you know, this is someone who, you know, entrepreneurs have to have vision that when they bring it to, you know, a fair amount of the investors, the investors, the good ones are like, you know, 90% of them say crazy idea. And you got, you know, stand alone in the desert for years mm -hmm. if need be. And that's when in Churchill for me, you know, in the late 20s, early 30s, seeing what was going on in, in Europe, in Germany, you know, took incredibly unpopular stances. Mm -hmm. Paid an incredibly high political price, was outcast in the desert for years and years and years, but had conviction in his point of view. So not really the answer you were looking for, but that's one like I have a little state. This is very embarrassing at home where I you know work half the time from the office, half the time from home where I have my video set up with my camera. I have a little statuette of Winston Churchill, <laughs> which reminds me you know, have conviction in your points of view. You're the CEO, you've got to drive. And so you have to have conviction in your point of view. You know, I love asking that question when people answer it in a different way. Like the easy answer is to say like, oh, Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. But I find it really fascinating when they dive into people outside of the business world, especially when it's, you know, a historical figure. I think they're fun to study and, and to learn they from. They are. What about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you? There's one book that I must have read five times in my life. It's not a business book, quite the opposite. It's a book called Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Hmm. And it's, a, it's an excellent book about, you know, a young Brahmin living in India, ancient India in the time of the Buddha. And it's just a book that follows an individual throughout his life. And, you know, his life goes through various chapters. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a Brahmin, he's an aesthetic, he's a merchant, he's a ferry boat captain. And, you know, every time I read it, I get something else. Mm. And I'm reading it right now again, because, you know, it's a book about personal transformation. 
And it's a book that, you know, every time I find myself at a crossroads in my life mm-hmm. or in my career, I turn to that book. And right now, you know, I think that I'm at a crossroads. I think a lot of the tech industry is in a crossroads where, you know, for 10, 12 years, there was an, an environment where the sun was shining and funding was, there was a lot of it and valuations were very high and, and it was grow, 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 which is a lot of fun. And right now, you know, we're in a very different economic moment and that's okay. It's got lots of challenges, and, but it's got lots of opportunities. And, you know, there's that famous quote from a Formula One driver, I'm going to misquote it, but it's something like, it's really hard to overtake 15 cars when it's sunny, but you can do it when it's raining. Yep. <laughs> you know, and it's raining right now in the global economy and especially in tech. And so that has an opportunity, but it means that I need to be a very different CEO than I've been in the last 10 years. It means my exec staff and the entire company needs to think very, very differently. And it's around, you know, how do you make decisions? How do you balance growth with efficiency? How do you deal with customers whose state of mind has changed dramatically? And they're, you know, laser focusing on the ROI they're getting from every single dollar. And this is a time that really, you know, separates the nice to have products from the must have products. And so that really serves to focus what you're doing, but you have to bring a different mentality as a CEO. So the book Siddhartha, you know, I come back to it because this is a moment where, you know, both I and the team uh, and the entire company has to go through this kind of transformation to make sure that we're the ones passing the cars in the rain, not the ones being passed in the rain. Makes a lot of sense. And like you were saying, that's all of tech right now, right? Everyone's going through this painful period, I think, where they transition or have to transform. And if you don't transform, you're going to die. So the stakes are high, I think, for for anyone in tech right now. Yeah, this is not a moment to be licking your wounds. This is a moment to be leaning into the opportunities and meeting the challenges. Do you have fun in moments like this, in these like wartime moments? Do you enjoy those more than like the the peaceful times or yeah, the, the peace times in the company? Yeah, I don't know if fun is the word. I, you know, for me, it's... Um, I've never seen this as fun. Mm-hmm. I've always seen this as growth. And, you know, like I love to run long distances. I don't find it fun. I find it challenging and I find that very rewarding. And so there's a lot of challenges in these moments. And you're definitely pushing yourselves to areas where you're pushing your comfort zone and you're doing things you never had to do before. And so, yeah, I do find that very, very rewarding. That's why I'm a CEO, because every day the company's bigger than it's ever been. Every day the company's bigger than it was yesterday. Every day I'm facing challenges that I never had to face. And so I'm constantly learning, constantly inventing you know, new parts of myself. And so I, I find that very rewarding. And I'm a big runner as well. So I have to ask, what's your longest distance that you've done? The longest distance that I've done is I'm not like an ultra marathon runner. Not that crazy. Longest distance is, you know, I live right next to a mountain range, you know, about 20 miles. Okay, nice. Yeah. Are you an ultra marathon? You do like super long distances? I tried. So I, I just tried my first 50 mile and I, I failed. So they cut me off at the halfway point. I missed it by 14 minutes. So I'll redeem oh, myself. Oh, goodness. <laughs> okay. okay. 
But I'm gonna, I'm fun. gonna. I hope to do that one day. I mean, right now I've got full time job, three young kids, and two dogs, two puppies. Yep, they're <laughs> kind of hard for me to take five hours off at a time. You know. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. But one so, day. Uh, one day. Busy schedule to to add that in. But I like what you said there because I think that's very true about running too, right? It's like I don't enjoy running at all, but afterwards, like. I feel great. I love it. Like the example I was giving to friends is when I tried this 50 mile ultra race in Lake Sonoma, the entire time of like seven hours I was running, I was just thinking to myself, why do I do this stuff to myself? This is miserable. <laughs> it's not fun. And then the next day when I woke up, all I could think about is, man, I want to be back in that place. I love oh, it. I like yeah. the pain. Yeah. I like like the state of mind that it puts you in. And I, I think that's that very similar to what you're describing there with entrepreneurship. And I think that's what entrepreneurs and founders deal with as well. It's like this love-hate relationship with the place that it puts you. You know, I found that running for me helps kind of reduce my stress. It's my meditation because the job is hard. And, you know, when it's your business, you know, it's kind of like the godfather. Everything is personal. <laughs> you know, and, and so when the stress builds up and it always does, you got to be able to pace yourself. And so for me, running, you know, it lets me zone out and, you know, not think about work and also just get the adrenaline going and the endorphins. I think that, you know, 10 years in, it's a great kind of escape valve or pressure valve for me, which I think every entrepreneur needs. Yeah, especially positive ones like running or working out. It's a good, a good place to channel that energy. Let's switch gears a bit here and let's talk about the company. So can you just give us a high-level overview of what you guys do? Sure. So we do AI ops. And so that's kind of a fancy buzzword for how do you use AI and machine learning to take this tsunami of machine data that's coming out of clouds and data centers and turn that into usable insights for engineers especially engineers and operations. So if you think of folks in IT ops, so it's DevOps or IT ops or SRE, site reliability engineers, and it's their job to keep all this digital infrastructure running. You know, all the digital economy runs on servers and storage and networks and applications and microservices. And it's got all these moving parts and they break all the time. And it's the job of operations folks to find and fix the problems, hopefully before, you know, your online digital service is disrupted. That's getting harder and harder to do because these cloud environments are getting more complex every day. And the digital economy is getting bigger and bigger. So you have more moving parts and they're moving faster than ever before. And that's creating this tsunami of machine data that the people in operations have to figure out every day, hey, what's going on? It's really hard to do when it's petabytes of data. You know, it's just gone beyond the limit of human scalability to actually read the matrix and understand what's going on. And so we say, hey, that's a really good use case for AI. AI is good at taking, you know, large sets of fuzzy and fast-moving data and turning that into insight and automation. So that's what we do. And take me back to 20, when did you launch? It was 2011, 2012, something like that? 2012. 2012. Yeah. Take me back to 2012. What was that observation in the market that you made there? And, and what was the problem that you were trying to solve then? And how has that evolved? Because like, I'm guessing that problem didn't exist as much back in 2012, did it? No, it did not. And to be honest, we didn't start the company. We didn't start Big Panda looking to do AI ops. We actually started it in a radically different space doing uh, advertising technology. 
And we took initial seed funding from Sequoia Capital doing advertising technology and brought together some really smart engineers to do a lot of data mining to do some interesting stuff in that domain. And after a year and a half, we hit a wall. We realized that the thesis of that company in advertising was not going to work. And it was either, hey, give the rest of the money back to the investors Mm -hmm. or pivot. And we ended up pivoting, obviously. And we pivoted towards something that was a problem that we had solved for ourselves in that first kind of chapter as a company, where the chapter was when you're doing advertising technology, you're doing web scale infrastructure. A lot of people surfing the internet at any given time, and they want their advertisements delivered really, really quickly. And so you have to have high scale, high performing infrastructure. And we had built a stack that was using the same clouds and SaaS and, and open source as everyone else. And when we had performance and latency issues, it took us forever to figure out where was the problem because we had so many different moving parts. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up hacking together some very rudimentary software to help us find and fix problems faster. And so when it came time to pivot the company, we said, hey, you know, we're using this modern kind of cloud tech stack. We had a lot of problems due to fragmentation. Mm-hmm. Maybe everyone else who was using these same tools and clouds has. And so that kind of started Big Panda as it was. You know, we were, scratch- we were scratching our own itch. There was no AI at the time. You know, it was much more around how do we take all this data and visualize it in one place. But we very quickly got to the point when we started speaking to enterprises that we understood, hey, the amount of data that people have to use, it's, you're not going to solve that with good visualization. You have to have you know, really powerful data processing. And so that's what brought us to AI. And the first few years were hard. The first few years were hard because you know, we were at the right place at the wrong time. You know, we came to enterprises in 2014 and said, hey, you're moving to the cloud. That's going to bring a whole tsunami of data. You're going to have a hard time operating in those environments without AI. And the first two, three years, we heard back from enterprises, hey, that's very interesting, but we're still experimenting with the cloud. We haven't put kind of mission-critical assets in the cloud, so we don't really have the problems that you're dealing with. And it took us, I think, you know, wandering in the desert for till 2017 which is when the market kind of hit a tipping point and enterprises started really adopting public cloud. And that's when the pain that we solved started becoming really acute. But, you know, the first few years were tough. That's a long time to be out in the wilderness, wandering around trying to you know, make the case like this. What did you do at that time to you know, maintain focus, to stay motivated? How did you keep yourself motivated? And how'd you keep your team motivated during that, maybe let's say like dark period of the company history? Yeah. It was hard to sell. Well, you got a lot of, read a lot of books about Winston Churchill, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and conviction in the, you know, in the face of what you know is right. Look, it was hard. It was hard because we had that vision, but everyone wants to be on a rocket ship. And, you know, there's those that sell and those that explain. And we were in those that explain for a good few years. And so we had to bring in, you know, folks that believed in the vision. We had to sell it. We were fortunate enough to have great investors who believed in what we were doing and helped us 
capitalize to do what we need to do. You have to really focus on the culture. Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of the day, people want to be work for places where they love the vision, they love their culture, they love their boss, Mm -hmm. and they see themselves succeeding. And you can't get by in the long term without the last one, but you can do it for a while if you've got a great culture. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And talk to me about those first early customers then. Let's go to 2017 when it seemed like the market started to really understand this problem and and want to spend money to solve this problem. What was it like those first few customers that you landed? So, you know, we had, I'd say pre-17, three things happened in 2017 and really make it a tipping point. And I'll I'll get to your question in a sec. Mm -hmm. You know, one is the market started taking off, like you said. Two is we got smart around defining our ICP, our ideal customer profile. Before we'd said, we're going to sell to anyone in the cloud. Took us a good few years to figure out, no, our ICP is large enterprises. They're the ones with scale and complexity. So that was the second thing that happened. The third thing that happened is we got serious around our values. Hmm. You know, up until then, we had never really been deliberate about having values. I'd always been very skeptical about the concept of values. Mm-hmm. And I found that when we tried it out, it really helped crystallize, you know, the culture, bring the right kind, help us bring the right kind of employees. And so, you know, all of that together was part of the tipping point of 2017. You know, to your question, the first big customer we brought on was still a customer, a very large global semiconductor manufacturer. And, you know, they came in and landed a mothership on us. And so, you know, at the time, our engine was up to the task. But around the engine, you know, there's a whole car. And the car has things like enterprise scalability and security and auditability and availability and support. And we didn't have any of those things. You know, we had a really good AI engine that makes sense of, you know, lots and lots of data and turn it into insight. But we didn't know what enterprise scale support was or security. Who's trying to break into us? Like we don't have any customers. And so, you know, it was like the cat, you know, the snake that swallowed the cow. And so that was Q1, 2017. Q2, 2017 brought our next big enterprise customer, a very large HR SaaS provider, and then on and on and on. And these were early customers and they were visionary enough to understand, hey, the core of our offering works and they were willing to be design partners around the enterprise features that, that an enterprise needs. So it was a thrilling, it was a thrilling time. You know, it was a time of a lot of acceleration. It was very nice. You know, five years waiting for the market to happen, it takes a toll. And, you know, it's, you start doubting yourself, you start doubting your vision. And then when it finally starts happening, it's, it's very exciting. And did it happen very quick? Did it feel like it just, overnight all of a sudden turned or did it, was it just like a slow transition where it seemed like everyone started to get it? No, it kind of happened perfectly because in the first year we landed, I think five or six very large customers. If it happened any quicker than that, we probably would have failed 
because, you know, there was a lot of duct tape and bubble gum mm-hmm. to support these large enterprise customers. And we did it. But there were times that were like, this is scary. This whole thing could tip over. And then 2018 really just started to take off. But by that time, we had already built a lot of the you know, core foundations of an enterprise platform. So it happened pretty quickly. And you mentioned failure there. That's one thing that we like to always ask about, and that is uh, near-death experiences. So can you recall any near-death experiences that you had where it got down to the wire, where it was maybe like weeks or months until the, the company was done? You know, we were fortunate enough to never be in a position where, you know, we were going to run out of cash in two months. Mm-hmm. You know, we were always fortunate with the funding. But, you know, many times in those first few years, you know, me and my co-founder are looking at ourselves and saying, hey, is this thing real? You know, in 2015, we're about to launch the offering. And one of our very big companies in our ecosystem offered to acquire us. And, you know, we came close to selling. Both me and my co-founder would have made, you know, a life-changing amount of money. But we weren't ready. We just worked for two years to bring this thing to market. And we both wanted to see our baby, you know, see the light of day. And so we passed on the acquisition and we're both kind of beating our chest and feeling very macho. And we're going to conquer the world. And and then we released the offering and it was crickets, (laughs) you know, for two years. You're like, oh, shit, what have I done? What have I done? That wasn't a near-death experience, but that was certainly, you know, cold splash of wa- cold bucket of water in your face. And, you know, <laughs> thank God we didn't sell. You know, we've had a ton of success in the last five years. And, you know, more importantly than success, I feel like I've just, you know, hired an amazing team, feel very blessed to work with the people that I work with. I've learned a lot. I'm a different person than I was and all of it the hard way. And something yeah. else I want to ask about is, you know, you achieved what I think all founders aspire to achieve or, you know, one of those milestones they want to hit. And you built a company that's a unicorn or, or worth more than a billion dollars. What was it like for you the day that that happened? Do you recall that day? Was it meaningful? Did it feel any different? What was that experience like for you? I recall a day. Yeah, I recall a day. It wasn't. I mean, we made a lot of noise around it. Mm-hmm. Because it's good for PR, it's good for recruiting, you know, there's PR value to doing that. But it wasn't a really, it was a kind of a non-event for me. Friends and investors called me and congratulated me and, you know, my parents were very proud and all that. It wasn't really an event for me because it's just a moment in time. And at the end of the day, you know, the only thing that matters is, are you serving your customers? Are you bringing innovative technology to market? And, you know, as time has shown, valuations go up and down, multiples go up and down. That's really a function of a little bit about your success and a lot about where the market psychology is. But, you know, it's very dangerous to have your self-worth, you know, based on your valuation, because those things, you know, like, again, a lot of it is based on you, but a lot of it's not based on you. And so the only thing you can do is build a great company, build a great product serve your customers. And so I was very clear with, you know, our employees like, hey, this is awesome. We should say this is a moment to celebrate, but it's kind of meaningless. It's just a moment in time. And that tracks very well with what all the other founders I've brought on who have built billion dollar companies. Very, very similar answers. I think 
no one said that it was a very meaningful day to them. Yeah, they used it for what it was. It was good for marketing. It was, you know, a milestone to cross, but that wasn't, you know, it's something that they spent a lot of time celebrating, uh, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, it's, imp- I mean, that's the right mindset because you can celebrate for five minutes and then you still have customers to serve product, you know, competitors to fight, you know, and all the rest. And in terms of your funding, so I'd mentioned there in the intro, 337 million, that's a lot of money. You've raised a lot of cash. What have you learned in your fundraising journey and what advice would you have based on that journey that you could share with other early stage B2B founders? You know, I don't know if I can give anything like that one trick to lose 15 pounds. I don't think it works like that. (laughs) You know, you got to serve a big market that has a lot of pain, customers that are willing to part with money. If you solve that pain, have an incredible team, that's it. I mean, I don't know if I have any special sauce to help, uh, you know, I don't, think that, I don't think there's any shortcuts. You have to build a great company. And what do you think the investors saw in you early on to say, hey, you know, we're going to back this guy and his co-founder. We believe in him. What do you think they saw? My wife was asking me that same question. Like, they gave you money? What? You know, I think uh, they saw an entrepreneur. First of all, it's, you know, I was fortunate enough to have surrounded myself with incredible team, especially in the early days with an incredible engineering team. And then as the company got bigger, an incredible team of executives around the business parts of, of the go-to-market, you know, I think, I hope they saw, I'll ask, and I'll get back to you on that. I'm not sure what they saw. I mean, I hope they saw an entrepreneur with a vision and energy and with leadership and someone who can bring great people around him. And early on, how'd you go about recruiting that technical team that you had? Because you're not a technical founder, right? No, I'm not a technical founder. My co-founder was our technical founder. He was in the Israeli intelligence services, kind of the NSA of Israel. 8200? 8200, that's right. 8200, kind of like a technology service in the army where a lot of the young soldiers come out of that. And it's kind of like young engineers coming out of Harvard or MIT or Stanford, except that these folks in 8200 actually had real world, you know, four or five years of real world battle-hearted experience. And so that's become a great feeder, credible feeder for entrepreneurship. And so my co-founder came from that background and we, we brought some of the folks that had worked with him previously in, in military intelligence. And so that was kind of the cadre of the initial tech team. And, you know, we brought some incredibly talented folks. We were very lucky. Now, I'd love to talk about growth a little bit. So to start that part of the conversation, can you just paint a picture for us of, you know, what the growth looks like today and any numbers and metrics that you can share that really demonstrate the growth that you've seen? Yeah, so it's a huge TAM. You know, there's tens of thousands of large enterprises that are all moving to the cloud and they're all challenged to keep their operations up. So we've been on, I say, a CAGR of probably 80% growth year over year. You know, that's slowed down a little bit in the last year due to the overall economy. But I expect it to pick up again, and it's it's a huge market out there. And so that's one of the biggest things investors saw in our category is, you know, whoever is the category king of this space is has a huge total addressable market to go. And so that's been fueling a lot of our growth. You know, we raised our last fundraise was, you know, a little over $200 million. And a big part, you know, two things that are good, that's going to go to A is turbocharge innovation around AI. And there's a lot going on there. And two is, you know, keep the growth engine going. And you mentioned my favorite word there, which is category. So let's talk about category. 
Early on, did you see this as a category creation play? Or what were your thoughts early on? And what are your thoughts today? Is AI ops the category that's being created here? Or what is that market category? Yeah, so the category is AI ops, for sure. And so it's how do you use AI in the spaces of operations? Uh, now, operations, IT ops, that's a trillion-dollar market. <laughs> it's huge. And there's many, 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 many subsectors of that market. And AI ops, AI, has a role to play in all of those subsectors. And so there's a lot of smart category creation that needs to go on in this space. So having you know world-class people who think about positioning Mm-hmm. And messaging and category creation is is essential. This is not just about technology. This is about category creation because it's such a big market that you have to be able to message it correctly. And did you coin the term then AI ops? Did someone else come up with it and you're you know, pioneering that? Or how do you think about that term? So we did not coin that term. To my knowledge, I think that Gartner coined that term. Mm-hmm. And... I remember, you know, the day as soon as I read it, someone told me about it. I said to myself, yes, that's it. That's the term, AI ops. It's perfect. It says it all. And so, you know, we were very quick. We were still a very young company. Nobody was doing what we were doing or very few people were. And we very quickly cleaned onto it and said, like, we think this is going to take off. And it has taken off. And aspirationally, then, is that the goal? Is that what you desire to be the category king of? Is it AI ops or is it something bigger than AI ops? How do you think about you know, what you want to be category king of? AI ops is the category. Mm-hmm. I mean, within that right now, we are a kind of part of the, you know, we're kind of a, a bucket within that that we call event correlation or incident intelligence and automation. How do you take information about incidents, which is when things are breaking Mm-hmm. and get intelligence and automation in there. And so that's a you know a very big part of operations, but there's a lot of other subcategories there that we think AI has a lot of benefit towards as well. And so our larger vision is more than incident intelligence. It's about how do you be the AI ops category king to the entire market. And final couple of questions for you. So if you reflect on this journey, And if you were starting the company again, what's the number one piece of advice you'd give to yourself? Oh, my goodness. Get to market sooner. You know, take it out of the lab. We spent two years building it kind of in the lab, and that was a mistake. You know, as much as I feel like we threw it out there with duct tape and bubble gum, if we had done it a year sooner, we would have accelerated sooner. We would have been all the better for it. You know, and I'd say the second one is take your time to hire the right execs. The right, hire the right talent. Like, you know, you've got a vacuum in a certain seat in your team and you want to fill it and there's a lot of pressure to fill it. Mm -hmm. But the cost of bringing the wrong person is even greater than leaving it vacant. So better to take your time, find the right talent that's the right fit in terms of, you know, experience and capabilities and cultural fit and leadership because the cost of mistake there is very, very high. And we opened this interview talking about hunger and you know, the importance of being hungry. How do you maintain you know, being hungry and that drive and motivation when you're 10 years, you know, 11 years into your journey? The company's you know, very, very big now. You've reached the, the milestones that a lot of founders dream of. What motivates you day to day and how do you maintain that hunger over that you know, extended period of time and into the foreseeable future? So, you know, a lot of it is like, you know, in some ways, I when I founded the company, you know, being a unicorn was like, 
you know, this big, hairy, audacious goal. And now you got it. And so now what do I do? And, and so for me, it's not about, you know, hey, I want to go build a $10 billion company or $20 billion company. It's a number of things. A lot of what keeps me motivated is my team members, you know, both the execs that I work with and all the rest of the team members that I work with from, you know, individual contributors who've been with the company forever and, you know, the amazing new talent we're bringing, you know, I want everyone who's put their trust and faith in me and this company have to this to be the best experience of their lives professionally. And from them, you know, 20 years from now to say, hey, this was one of the best experiences I've ever had in my working career. That's a big, big motivator for me. That really gets me up in the morning is to do, is to make sure that the people who put their faith in me, I'm repaying that tenfold. And final question, let's zoom out three to five years from today. What's the future of the company going to look like? What's that high level vision that you're building? So the higher level vision is, you know, think of what we do for incident management. We take all this IT data around incident management, use AI to make sense of it, turn it into intelligence and automation. Mm -hmm. But beyond incident management, like I said, there's a whole world of operations out there. Mm -hmm. And so if we can be that data lake, that data layer that takes in all that information from all sorts of different tools and repositories of IT ops data, <clears throat> makes sense of it, normalizes it, makes it accessible, and then powers all sorts of use cases mm-hmm. on top of incident management. That's the five-year vision. Amazing. I love it. Well, we're over on time here, so we'll have to wrap. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? They should go to bigpanda.io. And we pump that full of, you know, lots of relevant information, lots of updated news and blogs and information about what's the latest and the greatest. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story, sharing lessons about everything that you've experienced as you built the company and really painting a picture of this vision. This has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I know our audience is going to as well. So thanks so much for making the time. All right, Brad. Thank you. All right. Take care.